Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So we, we, it's been a little while since we, we've done a podcast, recorded a podcast, and I, and I think it's on this, this time it's on me. Usually you're, you're the one I can blame. I'm the limiting, I'm the limiting factor usually. Yes. But all of a sudden I got a little busy, bought a house and moved and all that, all that fun stuff. But, um, but we're back. So, and, uh, and with one of my favorite subjects to talk about, um, it, the, 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 I titled this one, getting, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and, and the, the, the basic idea is that we humans evolved in a very challenging, uncomfortable environment. There were threats and challenges of all types from, you know, lions and tigers and bears eating us to rival clans attacking us to not enough food or too much, too cold, too hot. I mean, I'd go back, I'd go back a little further to um, the uncomfortable transition from um, growing inside of a uterus to being birthed through a birth canal and all the trauma that ensues that's necessary to get the baby, you know, breathing on its own and it at that final yeah. those final moments close a hole, an opening in the heart that's made that keeps the baby, you know, alive and well in the uterus, but then needs to be closed in order to facilitate, you know, living outside of the uterus. So the stress is part of um is part of that transition period right and and obviously necessary for life uh, in that in that scenario so yeah that's kind of the general theme is that uh, that all of these stressors um we adapted to them and uh, that adaption includes genetic uh, changes and what have you that that helped us to um, adapt to that very challenging environment um, things like our affinity for calorically dense foods, um, our, our body's kind of resistance to, to dropping weight, um, or our, our natu- natural levels of, of anxiety. Um, we're all very, you know, um, facilitated our ability not only to, to, to survive, but thrive in that environment. However, the environment that we find ourselves in now, dramatically different. Like mm-hmm. every other, I mean, if you look at the comfort levels that we enjoy, that, that the average person enjoys today, the richest person didn't enjoy those comfort levels a hundred right. years ago. Right. Yep. So well, everything is geared towards convenience and and probably comfort and, and every other day a new you know a new mm-hmm. app or invention whatever comes out new product comes out makes our lives more comfortable you know right. if, there's, if there's a problem there's a, a solution for it so mm-hmm. so they the, but it begs the question are, are we maladapted for this comfortable environment what's the what are the, what are the impacts of it and there's a growing body of research that would would say yes we we are maladapted and it is causing us lots of of problems um and and i'm reading a book 
uh, very interesting. I'll give it to you when I'm done. Uh, called the Comfort Crisis, uh, which has the the title. It, it the author is Michael Easter, who's a journalist. He's not a scientist, um, but he's one of these science journalists, whatever. He also writes for like a outdoor magazine and what have you. Um, and and his the- thesis is uh, this comfortable life is bad for us in a number of ways, and we need to purposely introduce discomfort into our lives in order to be healthy, both physically and mentally and emotionally. So let me just stop there and ask you, you know, what, what do you think about that general idea? I mean, I think that, I think that there are benefits to being in a, environment where you know you aren't always in that fight or flight mode um i think that there's i think that where we usually talk about you know the our ancestors and how they uh were able to how they lived and, and all that kind of stuff the flip little bit of flip side to that is they also had very sh- much shorter life expectancies right so there's always a tug and pull a little bit to it. Um, but I mean, I would tend to agree. I would tend to agree. But with the general thesis. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, you know, what's a great one is just exercise is uncomfortable, you know, exactly. when it's done at a certain level of, of intensity. Um, but the other part of it that it does is, you know, I think the most successful people are shown to the, be the ones who are able to adapt. Um, and you're likely much better better at adapting to life if you have been uncomfortable in the past whether that's physically uncomfortable emotionally uncomfortable um you know the more maybe adversity and quote-unquote pain whether that's physical pain from a ton of exercise or otherwise um you're likely more adept at adapting and you know and thriving in those kind of situations well there's that old saying what doesn't kill you, make you, make you <laughs> yeah, stronger. Exactly. And it comes, comes to mind. Yeah, so yeah. let's, let's talk about some things that could kill you. <laughs> um, but if you survive them, they, they, they have a lot of benefits and we can, we can, so we're going to take a look at kind of some of the science behind um, uh, these, these types of, of discomfort, um, cold, heat, fasting and intense exercise. So, um, we'll do cold first. Uh, do you want, do you want to take cold? Or do you want me to take cold? Um, you take cold. Okay. I got cold. So, um, these are the, um, health benefits of, um, cold. Uh, so, and, and this is, so first of all, kind of cold, first one is kind of cold weather. Um, so, uh, they, obviously there's fewer allergies during cold weather because, you know, I'm blooming plants and there's less bug-borne mm-hmm. disease. Yep. Um, but also, these additional benefits have been um, have been studied and and confirmed. So, reduce overall inflammation. So, if you're, it's kind of like, you know, you 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 put ice on an injury to to take down inflammation. Well, if your whole body's cold, then it seems to have 
a, uh, a regulated effect on, in, on inflammation, which we know is bad for us. Probably not in the same way that an ice pack reduces inflammation on a bruise, let's say. Right. Um, also improved brain function. So there's, there's evidence that says our, our, our brains work better at cooler temperatures. Um, there's a lot of evidence that indicates um, that, that you get increased fat burn when exposed to cold. And in fact, it, it may trigger the formation of what's called brown fat. Have you, I'm mm -hmm. sure you've heard of that term. Yeah, if the brown fats, the, br the fat that we really don't want to have. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's been there's been studies. I'll say the caveat to all of these things is you can read stuff on how. So like because this kind of information becomes then either trendy or marketable. Right. So, you know, like the cryo tanks that you can go pay money to go like freeze yourself for <laughs> two minutes, like get inside of this thing. And that's like negative 200 degrees. Um, so this we're looking at it as like a big global overall picture there's conflicting there's there's some conflicting studies on the the like the actual benefits and human studies of doing all of this stuff so i'm not like an advocate of saying hey if you're not going to those cryotherapy wellness places you're missing out but brown fat um will help recruit so exposing your body to cool and even just cold temperatures helps like mobilize the different types of fat basically right. and and brown fat is more metabolically active than right than what's called white fat or typical adipose fat so it, it's better for you the other two things that i'll tell you about cold and this is this is guaranteed is you, your quality of sleep is going to be better if you sleep in a cool room right so these are also right so when we talk like in that way um that's looking at things in a different scenario we're not i wouldn't say you should sleep at negative 200 because we're talking right now about ex kind of extremes but that is absolutely correct that a, a cool room is going to be more um more amenable to improved sleep than a warm room yeah gotcha gotcha and the, for the brown fat um question just compared to white fat i think i misspoke in that it's not like that's the fat we don't want to have it's the fat that you know, we don't we want to minimize overall body fat composition but the brown fat is what generally helps um maintain your body temperature and when you get too cold it becomes extra active so it's more metabolically active and less stagnant i guess would be the word yeah yeah and i and i've heard read somewhere too that it's less likely to to um to emit um you know, uh, kind of toxins, so to, so to speak. So right. whereas, yep. whereas white fat is, is more likely to. Uh, yep. And so, you know, obviously there, there are things people can do to, 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 um, you know, if you live in a cold climate, such as you do, um, you can get out in the wintertime just more and, and know mm -hmm. that, 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 that cold weather is good for you. Obviously turn the thermostat down when you, when you go to go to sleep, or you could take the more radical route of those cryogenic chambers or yeah. or the these like i'm sure you've seen on instagram or what have you these people doing ice plunge baths mm -hmm. <laughs> that seems well, like and there's no fun there's definitely a, there's definitely like you said the anti-inflammatory um effect which likely does have a global anti-inflammatory effect when done body-wide um because it does 
even acutely in that moment, minimize inflammation. And I think it helps prevent further muscle breakdown. Like you see, you know, LeBron James getting into an ice bath after a game, um, stuff like that. So there is a acute benefit and then a um, proposed potential long-term benefit. Have you heard of the guy named Wim Hof? Mm, W-I-M is his first name and H-O-F is his last name. No, I have not. He, he's made a career out of cold, mm-hmm. cold kind of treatment, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, and he says, you know, so I'm reading from his website for most of our evolutionary history, a merciless natural environment automatically, um, uh, you know, challenged us and, and sub zero temperatures were among those howling winds and hungry wolves kept our muscles and veins supple and our minds sharp and clear <laughs> or killed us. One of the, <laughs> if it didn't kill us, one of the two. <laughs> Uh, so his and his method is it, in, it involves cold therapy, but also breathing. So, yep. Yeah. But he's yep. like, take a cold, you know, take the coldest shower you possibly can every day. Uh, just interesting. I haven't gone down that road, but I have I started kind of dialing back. It would, back, it would back be good for me. A little bit. So, but yeah. But okay. on the flip side, you could also make your shower much hotter and induce a sauna like effect um because there are benefits to extreme heat um as well there's a lot of data out there around um saunas and with heat stress this one has been um around for a long time um with saunas and not just like Um, there's dry saunas and then there's like the wet saunas and sauna bathing. So not everyone obviously has access to a sauna, but really, really hot baths, you know, over time there's, um, hot yoga, there's hot X, Y, Z exercise, you know, places that pop up all over the place. So, um, why are we doing this? What are the, the benefits of it? And the idea is that the exposure to heat at those levels in and of itself has um, brain and cardiovascular benefits over time. Um, so environmental stresses like extreme warm or even extreme cold um, causes our bodies and the actual cells to kind of, it, it challenges them, puts them through stress. Short-term stress on our body is a good thing. Um, long-term day-to-day low level stress is obviously a bad thing, but like exercise is doing exactly that. It's stressing your body, injuring your body in the short term for long-term outcomes. But the thought around the sauna, and there's a lot of data from the Finnish um, who do sauna bathing uh, much more regularly than anybody else um, on the cardiovascular benefits, um, mortality benefits, as well as dementia and Alzheimer's risk reduction with um, regular sauna use. And the thought process is maybe there's improved actual cell and microvascular function. So the actual like vasculature and endothelial lining of our arteries gets improved. Maybe um, it's reduced blood pressure and arterial stiffness, maybe increases in angiogenesis or, you know, new cell creation, um, which mediate benefits all over the body. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of different potential mechanisms that we don't, we don't really have it all figured out yet. Um, but what there, there have been several studies that show that there's a reduction in cardiovascular out, um, outcome disease and mortality in this subset of the population. And they do this lifelong. They begin in like early childhood, even as young as like one. Right. It's a way of life in, in like Sweden and, and yeah. Finland. In fact, I've, I've, I've read that the, the, the problem with doing studies there is you can't find a control group. You can't find people that don't do right. sauna. Right. Because you want to compare them to people in that same environment who just aren't doing the sauna and yeah. And then, and then so this... you also have to think, I always say, take some of this stuff with a grain of salt because, you know, can you extrapolate that to 20 minutes in a sauna three days a week at the age of 35 or 45 and or, 65. or is it because they've been doing, they've been exposed to sauna treatment since they were one, <laughs> you know? So that's, I think to be seen and comes with, um, you know, newer studies that come out, but in general, um, heat will challenge the body, um, which forces it to adjust to maintain its normal internal temperature. Um, and it directs blood to certain places where it needs to cool. So it's directing it to like the skin. Um, and then sweating, you know, is a kind of complex mechanism that helps cool the skin. Um, but what happens during this time is you have reduced blood pressure, you get an increased heart rate, um, your stroke volume or the actual blood that's pumping out of your heart is increased during that time. Um, so there's a lot of different kind of mechanisms going on that are thought to, you know, cause positive adaptations in your overall cardiovascular system. And then Alzheimer's disease is very complex and we don't know a ton about it. Um, but I think it's a little bit about the amyloid plaques that seem to be improved in people who are doing regular, you know, sauna therapy. Um, there's, there's all kinds of other evidence on, you know, increased VO2 max, which is what is kind of like a marker of your cardiovascular, overall cardiovascular fitness. So incorporating heat with your exercise um, increases your cardiorespiratory actual fitness levels. There is data behind that. Um, so it's, it's something to think about. If you don't have a sauna, they do say like really hot baths um, are a, a good substitute. And then these hot exercise places where you go basically i don't even know how hot they get them well, but yeah do I've, done, yoga, I've done hot do, yoga before or get on it a is, bike and bike in, inside yeah. a oh yeah hot box yeah. yeah that doesn't sound like fun but i mean you gotta uh, be careful you gotta talk to your doctor you gotta like watch out for you know all kinds yep. of all kinds of potential negative things but it's probably not harmful assuming you're not doing anything to the extreme to incorporate some kind of um heat therapy to your kind of week routine routine so you, and you're yeah. gonna you're gonna have an opportunity to do that pretty soon right aren't you putting uh, a sauna in your house <laughs> yeah we're finishing our basement and there'll be a sauna down there and i'm like brandon this is driven by my mostly by my husband because like he loves a hot tub and i don't i don't really care for hot tub he just likes to sit and be hot <laughs> <laughs> sauna is like the perfect place for that i like to sweat when i'm exercising 
and outside of that, I prefer not to sweat. So <laughs> I think some people also think that it's a substitute for exercise because your heart rate goes up and you're sweating. Um, I would say it's not a substitute for cardiovascular exercise, but you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there. Um, so it's not gonna, it's not like the magic pill type of thing, but it's definitely something that could add to your overall wellness and, um, like toolkit, I guess. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Makes sense. But there, there, again, like you said, tons of, of, um, of, uh, scientific studies coming out talking about the general uh, therapeutic effects on of, of sauna use in particular on on health span in general uh, mm-hmm. kind of lengthening your lifespan and and, and also uh, facilitating general good health so um, so um, now we're going to segue to another favorite topic of ours one we've talked a lot about so we don't have to delve too deeply here but but fasting so obviously hunger is uncomfortable and right. can kill you in the extreme. But I think in this environment, um, kind of dealing with hunger from time to time is necessary for good health. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty, I don't know, potentially radical statement. Would you say? Yeah. Well, it's that whole, like when you hear someone say they're starving, um, And I think some of that comes from realizing that we are, we get so comfortable with being constantly able to like eat, have something in your stomach and drink when you want to drink. And, um, and you don't ever feel what true hunger feels like. So even from no other standpoint, aside from understanding what true hunger actually feels like and what just like, you know, a phase throughout the day of, a lull in eating feels like, um, it can be, even if that was the only benefit, I think it's beneficial to really know what, what it's like to be. Right. Well, to differentiate, let's say real hunger from boredom. Yeah. Real hunger from just habit of, Oh, it's noontime. It's lunchtime. I must be hungry. So I'm, I I must eat type type of thing. And we should, we, we also should, should note that, uh, there are many, different flavors of fasting from the intermittent fasting. We talked about where you eat during a window of time being, you know, maybe six hours, maybe eight hours, maybe 10 hours. I would, I would argue that if your window of time is 12 hours, it's not really a fast because you're sleeping for most of that time anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, a multi-day fast where we're really talking, you know, three, five, seven or days or longer where, you're you're eating you know very very little calories mostly you know that's called the water fast um there also is this um kind of modified type of fasting called a uh, oh its name escapes me but basically you're eating 500 to 750 calories a day it's um it's a it's a um fasting mimicking diet fmd Um, so it's not quite as radical but that you're not you're not taking in many carbs, which um, is providing, you know, a lot of that. The benefits of fasting is is that you're not taking in carbs, so you're not spiking your blood sugar, so your insulin's not going up, and all the bad things that happens when uh, during an insulin spike aren't happening. Type right. Of thing. But I think we're both coming to the conclusion, or we're both in the of the mindset that that 
most of the benefits of fasting are uh, accrued because you're taking in less calories. Right. So a global reduction in calories is usually what's happening when um, when you're fasting or if you are restricting calories over the course of your day and not limiting to the time that you that you're eating, you probably you have similar results. So it's not that fasting itself is doing all these amazing things for metabolic health in the short term. If you are doing the long fasts or the, you know, 48 hour fast once a week, then that's probably a little bit different. But the intermittent fasting where you eat over like, you know, six hours a day or eight hours a day and don't for the rest, um, you don't have to do that to get the effects. What the effects probably are, are coming from is just a global reduction in calorie intake. Because there is a lot of data out there about calorie restriction over the long term and its benefits on health. So, and longevity, definitely, yeah. and and in many species, even other than humans, I mean, it's 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 pre- been fairly well proven that um, that calorie restriction, obviously up to a point, uh, equates to longer lifespans across many many different types of, of uh, animals. Right. Um, and I, you know, I tell you, one of the other, and you, you've alluded to it, you know, that being able to experience and appreciate true hunger is valuable in and of itself. Uh, and um, I, I think um, fasting and therefore uh, becoming hungry is a, is a great way to um, kind of exercise your mindfulness. Right. Because yep. I think similar to, you know, let's say our, our racing minds and being, being caught up and identified with all the thoughts going through our head, we become identified with with hunger. It's like, oh, you know, my, I feel hungry. My stomach's empty or whatever. I am hungry. I need to eat. And if you can step back and say, and, and kind of separate a little bit from that and say, okay, my body feels hungry, hunger. Um, let's see what a glass of water will do to that feeling. Right. Yep. Because oftentimes that hunger is very transitory. And right. if, you, if you kind of step back, identify it, take a drink of water, it goes away, yep. or just take some time, it goes away. So cool. Okay. Uh, the last one on our list was your favorite strenuous <laughs> exercise. I mean, I'm all about efficiency because I don't have a ton of time. So it's nice to know that we've uh, known this for a while, but there's good data on the benefits of vigorous exercise. As a blanket statement, any exercise is better than no exercise. You don't hurt or feel like you're like, you know, quote unquote, dying in order to have a benefit from your exercise. If you are someone who's not not gonna do these ex- more extreme exercises, walking every day is still going to be a huge help. But there's information out there that doing strenuous exercise um, has a lot of positive impacts on your overall health. For people who reported that they did um, a higher proportion of vigorous physical activity um, compared to others who do more moderate physical activity, had a lower risk of all-cause mortality in the long run. They usually are more likely to live longer um, than those who didn't do as intense exercises. Um, now, how much intense exercise do you have to do? Um, I don't think we have the answers on, hey, this is the exact regimen that you need to do. But I usually tell people, 
if you can incorporate a couple days of intense exercise a week, then you're probably going to be doing your cardiovascular system a, a, a favor. And then the other days do less vigorous, you know, maybe longer walks, that kind of thing. So what we're talking about is like a moderate intensity would be, you know, walking briskly versus strenuous is, is running or hiking uphill. Um, playing doubles tennis versus playing singles tennis, uh, raking knees versus shoveling heavy snow for 10 minutes, um, walking the stairs or running up and down stairs. That's the difference between like moderate difference. and yep. And you can, you, you, can, you can go and take that to, let's say, heart rate. You know, there's different measures. But like we've talked yep. about in the past, like a, a general um, rule of thumb for level two, which is exercising, which is moderate exercise, is 180 minus your age. So right. for me, that's around 120 beats per minute. Um, and, and that's about at the point where it becomes a little difficult to carry on a conversation. So those are the, those are the right. two kind of tests for that versus a level five exercise, which is vigorous. I think the, the calculation is like 220 minus your age. Right. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, so going by that, you know, and it's, and you can use, also use like the talk test. You shouldn't, if you're doing vigorous exercise, you shouldn't be able to talk. Um, and adding that to your week again, so swapping out and, and the, the nice thing about that, what I like about it is you can like cut your exercise time in half by doing that. You can do 40 minutes of moderate exercise, or you can do 20 minutes of strenuous exercise because, because of what we know, um, the, you know, cardiovascular metabolic outcomes of a moderate versus a really strenuous exercise. So I like the fact that you can do something quick. If you've only got 20 minutes, that's all you need as long as you're doing something strenuous. Thoughts on, um, so there's, there's kind of two general ways you can do strenuous exercise. Consistently strenuous or high-intensity intervals. And basically, the, if you're doing high-intensity intervals, you're, during the interval that you're at high-intensity, you're at an intensity that's higher than if you were just doing something for 20 minutes. Because, let's say... Yeah. You shouldn't uh, be able to do more than a minute, really, or I think it's like, what, say a minute or 30 seconds of of your highest intensity. Well, really, what, what what I've heard, Nicole, is that... Like 20 seconds? 10. 10 seconds. 10, that, that, yeah. if, that, that if you look at, let's say, Usain Bolt's running, running a 100-meter dash versus a 200-meter dash, yeah. at the, in the 100-meter dash, He's either still accelerating or has reached maximum speed by the end of that 100 meter dash. Yeah. In the 200 meter, um, while he may run that last 100 meters faster, it's because he's got a flying start. But at the end of that, he will be starting to slow down because you right. can't go all out for even 20 seconds. Right. Yeah. The idea. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and there's a, there's a, there's a, an exercise routine called the Tabata. Uh, you can, you can do it in, in various ways on a bike, uh, you know, doing burpees, whatever. Um, and there's two ways to do that, to do the Tabata. There's either 20 minute, 20 seconds on 10 seconds off, 20 seconds on that kind of routine right. or the flip side, 10 seconds on 20 seconds off, 10 seconds on 10 and, and continuing that kind of routine for a, a 20 minute period of time is a pretty darn good workout. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Cool. Cool. So uh, hopefully we have uh, given people some uh, useful information and encouragement to uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. 
That's right. Okay. <laughs> short term. Just okay. Short-term. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go take a cold shower. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not comfortable. Take care. Love you. Have right. a great day. Bye. See ya. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T H E D R A N D D A D.com for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now, the legal disclaimer this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.